Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. And this week, we're talking to Bob Smith, founder of Sage Advisory Services, about what's going on in the fixed income markets. Bob, thanks for being here. Thanks for helping us out. We want to hear all about Sage Advisory. Maybe we can start with that. Can you give us a little bit of an overview? Thank you for having me. Uh, Sage Advisory is an Austin, Texas-based uh, firm. Um, we have been uh, managing money for 27 years. Um, we really focus on a couple of specialties. One is that we're a fixed income manager, core fixed income manager. We do everything from excess, you know, um, short-term cash all the way out to core plus. Uh, and then we are also a uh, active ETF strategist and have been since about 1998. And so um, we do both of those. And uh, in the ETF strategy world, we do everything from core plus fix, uh, intermediate short term fixed. And then we have uh, an all cap equity strategy uh, that we also deploy uh, in many of our uh, risk strategies and so forth. So that's uh, right now we manage somewhere just around 24 plus billion. We're primarily a institutionally focused firm, but we do have uh, activity and do participate on about 20 different UMA, SMA and uh, various different model platforms uh, across the United States. Now, Bob, obviously you follow the fixed income markets very closely and it's been really, really exciting, especially over the past couple of months. But a lot of people have also been kind of caught off guard by this sudden spike in the 10-year and the 30-year. They reached as high as 5, 5.1%. Have you been caught off by how quickly rates moved up to 5% over the past couple weeks? I, I would say that uh, we were not, but I would say that throughout most of the year, um, we've been somewhat defensive uh, in two areas. One we were somewhat defensive in our duration allocations within all of our strategies, uh, anticipating a continuation of uh, the rate hiking cycle, which now you know is you know, eleven hikes, and here we sit at you know uh, five and a quarter, five and a half percent on Fed funds. Uh, I think the other thing that we've tried to do throughout, um, particularly in the second half of the year, is really begin to fade uh, credit beta. Um, because of what the intentionality is of that interest rate cycle. The interest rate cycle, as far as we can see, has a bunch of different authority issues associated with it. But primarily what we're trying to, or what the Federal Reserve is trying to do, is to create an economic slowdown of some form to reduce inflation, get it down to the target level, uh, hopefully not to um, destroy uh, the uh, employment market, but definitely to temper the activity in the economy. Generally, in those environments, uh, being long credit, particularly lower end of the rating spectrum, um, wouldn't necessarily um, make a lot of sense because of the pressure that places on uh, the economic abilities of various different companies, which are now starting to show up at the consumer level, but we're also starting to see it at the corporate level as well. Things like WeWorks, things about um, you know uh, some of the commercial real estate activity that's not working out so well. We're looking at consumer delinquencies and credit cards. We're looking at auto payments also, delinquencies occurring at a higher rate. And so these are all indicative of a stress 
uh, in the economy that's starting to emerge. And so being long credit in a big way didn't make sense. So uh, at this juncture, you know, we're, you know, we're kind of neutral to going long and, and have started to stretch out our duration uh, within our strategies and uh, have definitely rolled up the welcome mat for a lot of credit exposure. Hey, hey, Bob, to what do you attribute the recent move up in long-term yields? Because there seems to be a number of different theories. Well, you know, I, I think the clearest theory is it started probably back in August. <laughs> you Fitch, you know, August 1st says, hey, we don't like what we see here, and uh, we're going to downgrade you to uh, AA uh, because your fiscal uh, house is not in order. In fact, it's in, in a shambles, and it's looking worse. And, um, you know, the leadership that's non-existent in Washington has really given us uh, concern and, and a tremendous amount of pause. You back that up with uh, numbers that were also uh, issued in recent months by the CBO in terms of what they're projecting in terms of the long-term budget outlook uh, for the United States. And uh, they offered a very ominous outlook um, on federal annual deficits, where they said the federal deficit was projected to reach 5.8% of GDP in 2023, decline a little bit to 5% in 2027, and then proceed to grow each succeeding year, reaching 10% by 2053 or over the next 30 years. It That is absolutely mind-boggling. And we're at a moment in time here where debt to GDP is at 100%. The CBO projects that that is going to reach 107% by 2029, and by 2053, we'll be at 181%. That is a mind blower in terms of debt accumulation. A lot of people can't seem to wrap their brains around that, but when you look at where debt to GDP was um, not so very long ago, you know, you can go back in time and we've seen a doubling that in 1993, debt to GDP was only 43%. Since that time, you know, it's now grown to be 100%. It's doubled. And we ask ourselves, how sustainable is this? And I would argue strenuously that the market is concerned about the inability to sustain the level of spending and the amount of finance that is going to, the paper that's going to have to be sold in order to essentially facilitate the spending plans that are on tap. Now, what's starting to really get people concerned is what is the percentage of interest costs that are accelerating this growth? If you take interest out, debt to GDP is projected to run at about 3.3% over the next 25 years by the CBO. But when you add back in the interest costs, that number rises to over six, almost 8%. Um, and so this spiraling up of interest costs and because of the extended amount and, and extensive amount of debt that is looking to be issued here is really starting to give, I think, not only rating agencies, but investors concern about where are we going in terms of the long-term secular picture for interest rates? So in the near term, we're trying to manufacture a softening in the economy, reduce demand, you know, bring interest rates hopefully you know, down a bit from where we are today. But you have to juxtapose that to the CBO's projections in terms of what is the long-term secular outlook. And I think that's what's got everybody scratching their heads, like how are we going to pull that one off? 
And I think that's a concern for not only bond investors, it's clearly going to be for all investors, because what do you do with risk assets in that environment? With that kind of debt growth, you're clearly going to sit on the vibrance of the of the economy. You are really going to be dependent upon foreign investors to essentially float your boat. And you're also putting a lot of pressure uh, in terms of revenue generation uh, in a, where you get very muted kind of economic re, you know, uh, results because of heavy debt. Um, taxation is going to have to go up. And so what does that mean in terms of productivity in the economy? What does that mean in terms of spendable income for investors, which I think is going to be a shrinking commodity over time, unfortunately, because of the debt crap that we find ourselves in at the moment. Those are some stunning numbers you just outlined, Bob. So obviously, you know, record uh, debt to GDP in the U.S. Also, the deficits are the largest they've been ever outside of, you know, recessions and war periods. Do you think, you know, obviously over the past 10, 15 years, we've had large deficits, but the market seemed to ignore them. Interest rates are at rock bottom levels. Do you think now we've reached, reached a threshold where suddenly the market is going to be hyper-focused on deficits moving forward? We've crossed some sort of threshold here? Yes. There are a couple of reasons for that. And let's also step back. You know, everybody says, well, you know, who cares about the debt? Well, you know, I, I for one, do. Uh, I don't think the American households out there kind of run themselves to the point where, you know, they can't afford you know, debt. Therefore, they're all going to collapse. And we're seeing some of that on the margin. But one of the things that we have to recall is that we've only had a surplus, a budget surplus in the United States. This is an incredibly amazing number. Six times since 1960. To your point, we are definitely addicted to debt and leverage. We can't find any means to achieve a surplus or even a balanced budget here in the United States, which is a really sorry indictment of our political process. But I think the other thing that's really important here is that you have an excessive amount of debt that now has to be issued at not zero interest rates, not 1% interest rates, not 2% interest rates. We're talking about, you know, four and five and possibly even higher over a long period of time. That just ratchets up the overall deficit. That deficit then gets added to the debt. And at the same time, you've got people of my, um, my peer group, my boomers, who are retiring in droves and, and, and essentially pulling on all of the social insurance compacts, Medicare, where Medicare costs are expected to grow at an incredibly fast rate. I think the, uh, in some, the assumptions that the CBO were, uh, was projecting um, was something in the order of healthcare spending is projected to grow from 5.8% of GDP at the end of 2023 to 8.6% by 2053, every single year. People would argue that that's not productive because that's a legacy cost. So that drag, in addition to the interest cost as a percentage of GDP, leaves politicians very few options to grow and stimulate an economy must much less sustain just the financial capability of the economy as we sit today. So you, you look at debt to GDP, 
debt to GDP in the United States today, depending upon which number you want to work with, whether CBO or otherwise, we're looking at debt to GDP that's somewhere in the area of 100 to 110%. And people kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, who cares? Well, well, let's compare that to Italy at 141%. How about Greece at 192%? Um, we can go to Japan at 200%. The fact of the matter is, is that we're looking more and more like what used to be known as the pigs, which was Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain. Well, all of a sudden, our debt to GDP numbers are very comparable. What should be the price that people want to extract for that in terms of if you want to borrow my money, here's what the price is. I think the long-term secular trend would argue, given the demographics, given the amount of leverage already on the books and the amount of leverage yet to be issued and rolled over, that makes for a very difficult mathematical problem to achieve one, two, three percent real rate of growth, which is where revenue generation starts to happen, where we can start to eat away at the deficit. Hey, Bob, do you do you see rates? It sounds like you do. You see rates going higher from here then? I think no. I think that in the short run, what can happen here is that, and again, I'm not a huge fan of the Federal Reserve uh, in terms of some of their choices that they've made in recent years. But I think that we are perilously close to an environment where the central bank is really no longer independent. But really, the central bank starts to become a vessel of the treasury. Mm -hmm. And that has happened in the past. It's happened in the recent past. And so the question then becomes, you know, does fiscal policy swamp monetary policy simply because of the size and the immensity of the debt and the demands of society, you know, to facilitate promises made? Like I said, you know, some of the social insurance issues and so forth. Yeah. We are now spending more money or as much money on interest costs as you spend on defense as a percentage of GDP. That number is higher. Let's, hey, Bob, let's switch over to some of the investments uh, and sure. the, the way money's flowing that we're seeing. Uh, this this ETF, this long bond ETF, TLT, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Everybody seems to be familiar with it. It's seen net inflows of over $20 billion this year and a year-to-date yep. decline of 14%. Um, here at uh, ETF.com and our, our regular news meetings uh, every day, we, we get into a little bit of a banter about what's driving it. Um, why do you think so much money is flowing into, into that area? Uh, well, uh, in the interest of disclosure, we, we own some TLT in our core plus strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, out of 12% allocation in our core plus, um, not the only thing. I think, I think people are feeling that we're at that moment of the pivot in the interest rate cycle, mm -hmm. and that this is really, as much as anything, a market timing issue. I think it's premature. Uh, I thought last week's reaction was premature to kind of the dovish tone that the uh, the Fed chair uh, offered us, um, he didn't say he was changing anything. It's just going to we're just going to stay here for longer. And so the market is now, to a certain extent, redefining that formally as a failure into a success. Well, at least they're not going up. So let's go buy the long bond. 
if you look at the TLT on a year-over-year basis annually over the last 10 years, your average return was more negative than it was positive. And so on an annual basis. So you, you have to sit there and say, this is a market timing technical issue. I am trying to time the pivot to a softer monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Difficult thing to achieve. And especially when you've got you know, a rash of governors, you know, or, or Fed officials coming out in just the last 48 hours, whether it's Bowen, Waller, Neil, you know, uh, Kashkari, all of them gave you kind of wishy-washy, maybe we're kind of going to raise it if we have to. So they're kind of backtracked a little bit. And so the market's like, wait, wait a minute, where are we going? But I think that people are saying, look, I'm looking at the tea leaves here. It looks like the economy is ratcheting down. Looks like the consumer may be in trouble in terms of being able to pay off, you know, their uh, their liabilities. We're seeing slowdowns. We saw in oil, uh, the U.S. Uh, Energy Information uh, Agency just uh, recast their forecast for energy consumption, um, which was uh, supposed to be up 100,000 barrels a day next year. They've now recast that to be negative 300 barrels, 300,000 barrels a day, the 400,000 barrel a day shift. So a big ratcheting down because the anticipated slowdown in the U.S., anticipated and obvious, you know, slowdown is occurring in China. Um, So I think that people are trying to get ahead of the curve and say, I can front run this. But my issue is that a pivot doesn't mean a collapse, you know, and so... I would argue that you will not see any meaningful change in you know, interest rate policy other than what's been enunciated um, until probably middle of next year. Maybe we might talk about early June-ish um, when everything is really starting to look difficult. How can you have a pivot on policy when you haven't hit the inflation target yet? Yeah. It looks yeah. And so I think there's a lot of anticipation. I think there's a lot of traders out there that think I'm going to get ahead of this. Uh, it's a lot of speculation. But until we get closer on inflation, which we may well do, I think the growth side is starting to come down. But we have to see how that translates into the inflation numbers. Sounds uh, like we- you're almost taking the other side of the TLT bet, uh, Bob. Does that mean you know investors should be you know focusing on the other end of the curve? They should be buying money market funds and things like that, because we've seen a lot of inflows into those as well. Good question. Uh, and there, there are those out there that have barbell, TLT, and BIL. Okay, that's fine. I just don't know what duration you're shooting for. The big difference, Jeff, is I'm not a trader or a speculator. I'm an investor. So yes, I am long TLT, but my horizon extends out you know, kind of six to 12 months. Where do I think I'm going to be? not six to 12 days. And I think that's the big difference. There's nothing wrong if you're a trader. Okay, fine, go for it. But as an investor, you know, our view has to be a a little bit more extended and a bit more diversified. And so when I look at my positions right now, 17% of my core plus strategy is in treasuries. I am underweight treasuries but the largest component of that is TLT, which is about 12% of my allocation, right? So I got a little bit at the front end and I've got a little in the belly. So I'm kind of distributed along the curve in treasuries. What I am really overweight 
is mortgage backs. And here, there I'm carrying about a 44% allocation, which is as high as I have been and I can't remember. But I think that is a better alternative than just buying treasuries because why? I'm, I don't think we're going to get that kind of a herky-jerky adjustment in rates and flattening in the curve because you look at the adjustment of the curve. Yeah, we've come down on two tens from 119, 120, but you know, even this week, you're still hanging around negative hey, Bob, 30. Bob, let me let me get in here and go back to the the TLT sure. question again for you. You you uh, you sound like you're you're not bullish on TLT, but yet you say it's in your models. Is that because that's the way the models are structured? Yeah, we're trying to hit a a given duration. Uh huh. We want a certain amount of liquidity in terms of what are the things that I can make duration adjustments on really quickly that are less expensive than other things that I might have. Mm -hmm. Not going to affect the duration adjustment. Well, it's, really a, it's a duration play. Probably that's what's driving a lot of the money into TLT, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh. What, what do you what do you make of all the money? Five point six trillion sitting in money market funds. What what does that suggest to you as far as a, a market perspective? Is are people just happy with five percent and they're saying I don't I don't care if I don't get a you know a, if I don't beat anything out there right now? Is this a is this a risk off move or is it just the Fed's put that rate on money market so people are going to just ride it? I, I this is an excellent question, Jeff. I. Uh... It's hard to explain how people think about the world, but uh, I, I think from an anxiety standpoint, that's probably the most anxiety-free trade I could do today. Mm -hmm. uh, we also just got a treasury announcement from Janet Yellen that told us that all of our borrowings are going to be front-end loaded, so we're going to continue to put pressure on the front end of the curve, which means rates will be higher. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of loopy. I don't understand what the treasury is doing, but... I would say that right now investors are trying to figure out what is the direction of interest rates on a longer term basis. I'm being paid to kind of hang out here at 5%. I still have an inverted yield curve of roughly 35, 40 basis points. I'm not being hammered uh, in terms of giving up anything. I got my carry. What about and, um, mm -hmm. what about bond ladders? I just wrote a story recently about bond ladders. It, it seems like an ideal kind of market for bond ladders. What what's your thoughts on that? Yes, sir. We uh, we are promotive of bond ladders. Um, we have a series of strategies for muni bond ladders, and we're with you. We think more and more people are kind of jumping on board with that. I was in New York yesterday actually talking to an advisor who's putting, she is putting her clients into more and more ladders um, because people are just uncertain about the direction of rates. And so rather than try and anticipate uh, the mm -hmm. income-oriented client wants to clip the coupon is very happy to do bond ladders and let the duration betting happen someplace else. And you touched on this earlier, Bob. Uh, you talked about how credit just doesn't make sense in this environment. Why do you think credit spreads are still so narrow with a lot of people anticipating a recession today? Uh, I, wish, I wish I could answer that question because we're sitting here saying, look, you know, they're, they're not going to get tighter. Uh, if I can earn more by buying a, you know, current coupon, just below current coupon MBS, uh, or as much as I would get in a triple B single A corporate uh, and buy triple A, triple A agency backed, I'll do that all day long. 
And I'll get some positive convexity that if rates do go down, I'm going to probably get some good price advance off the back of that. So on a, a relative value trade, we don't think it makes sense compared to maybe owning some mortgage backs. Um, and we think that you have to be highly selective, which is very difficult to do in ETF land. Um, so we're not going down in credit beta right now. Our high yield, just give me an example. Our high yield exposure is really only in short high yield, SHYG, 5%. And that is the lowest that we have been for, I can't remember, because typically we'll run with about 20% in, in terms of non-core fixed income. And then we've got investment grade uh, EM debt for about 3%. But that is about as exciting as it gets in terms of, you know, I'm going out the credit spectrum. Other than that, I mean, I've got about a 29% allocation in credit. But again, it's spread across the curve. I, I think uh, what we're doing in our SMA and UMAs is to really lean hard into bank and finance, uh, into energy and very selectively, you know, uh, consumer non-durable kind of stuff where we feel happy with the name. But we have really rolled up our credit beta because we think it's going to be difficult you know, for the months to come um, for a lot of the business models that have to do a lot of financing, not in the world of one or two percent interest rates, but four or five, six percent interest rates or more. Hey, Bob, um, as, we're, uh, as we're kind of winding down here. I want to talk a little bit about some news that came out of uh, of your shop uh, this week. the The ETF stewardship survey. Um, what What do you see as some of the highlights of that? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the the study and the report. Sure. Um, thank you for asking. Um, the ETF study is the fifth in a row. This is our fifth annual, so we've been doing this for a while. It asked uh, this year about. 76 questions across the spectrums of governance, uh, sustainability, uh, staffing, stewardship, culture, all of those things. Um, we sent it out to about 38 providers. What we got was half of those guys responded. That group represented something in the order of 85% of all U.S. ETF assets that are outstanding in the market today. Huge amount of influence as far as we can see. Purpose of the study is to figure out how is it that you're working for me, the investor, because I am giving you my money and I expect you to be a steward of my money. That's your fiduciary responsibility. So how are you voting proxies? How are your staff? What are your policies on a variety of different issues? What are the things that you feel are important you know, for me, the investor, to be aware of in your organization? There's really nobody that we know of that has done this report or a report of this nature um, as consistently as we have. Mm -hmm. What you will find is that not all e ETF providers are created equal. One of the disturbing issues is that we find that there are certain people that are not really feeling it's their responsibility to vote your proxy. If I'm a passive index manager, I don't feel that I should be actively voting your proxy. We were stunned to get that answer. That is the new thing. The other version of that is I'm just passing it along to large institutional investors. Well, what about the rest of us? And oh, by the way, if you're not going to vote my proxy, did you tell me that in your prospectus? And do I get a fee adjustment? Because that's the service I'm not receiving. I do get it from the other people. That is an interesting perspective that I haven't heard anyone present yet about a fee adjustment for the for not oh. voting proxy. Um, <laughs> you should pay for what you get. <laughs> yeah. 
that's a hot button issue that we could probably do a whole separate podcast on. I love the I love the whole the way some of these companies are are offering uh, variations of, uh, of proxy voting at the shareholder level, although it's still a proxy of proxy voting, if you will. Yes. Yes. But, you know, when you add up the big three, okay, you take, uh, you know, the vanguards, the black rush, the state streets, when they constitute 20 to 25% of every vote in the S and P 500, mm -hmm. you have to know what are you doing with that power that I am giving you? How am I benefiting from that? How am I protected from, for that? And those are the things that we try to dig away at in the survey. And I think you'll find it very interesting, some of the things that pop up. And we're trying to get to best practices. What should be the standards of practice for our industry when it comes to this? Because the ETF market is, is, is growing by leaps and bounds. And so, and, and particularly as you get more and more 40 act mutual fund conversions, you're only going to see more, not less. So how do I know whether or not this ETF provider is better than me? And the, and the interesting thing is size doesn't always matter because you always think, well, bigger guys have more staff, more money, can throw more things at that to get that job done. We find there are very good small ETF providers that are exceptionally strong in carrying out their fiduciary and stewardship responsibilities, even compared to some of the medium and larger size guys. Super fascinating stuff, Bob. And where can uh, listeners go to read this uh, report and get the results of the survey? Sure. We'll post it on our website uh, this week. So you can go to sageadvisory.com and uh, on our, you'll land on our homepage and there you can get directed to our research and you'll see it listed there. Fantastic. Well, Bob, that's a great place to leave it. You gave us a ton of great insights. Thanks so much for your time. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.